Take your Bibles and turn with us, please, to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter number 4. It's good to be in the Lord's house. And again, it's good to have our visitors today. God bless you for coming our way. And may he bless you greatly. Luke chapter number 4. As you find verse number 1, if you can and will, would you stand with us, please? We'll honor the word of God by standing for the reading of today's text. We're interested in the temptation of Jesus Christ in the wilderness. This would be message number 16 in the Christ series. Um, Luke 4, beginning in verse 1, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up into an high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee in the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. You know, if nobody else come by and see you, eventually the devil will be back around. Said he left him for a season. Then verses 14 and 15. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about, and he taught in the synagogues, being glorified of all. Jesus tempted in the wilderness, the temptation of Jesus Christ in the wilderness for these 40 days. Thank you for standing As we look at this event in the life of Christ, it is worth noting that this event is recorded by all three of the synoptic gospels. Uh, Synoptic simply means to see the same. Uh, The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is written with a flavor all its own. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, And they all follow a similar pattern. But John, um, again, he's quite a bit different. He gives us a lot of interviews with Christ. The great I Am declarations of Christ are recorded. There are eight miracles of Christ recorded in the gospel according to John, which show us different facets of salvation itself. Of course, Matthew wrote to the Jews. You've heard me rehearse some of this before. Matthew's target audience is the Jew. He presents Christ as the king of the Jews and portrays Jesus very lion-like. 
Mark writes to the Romans. The Romans were interested in how much a man could accomplish. So he shows uh, the Lord Jesus to be the perfect servant. And he presents him very ox-like. He's in the harness. He's pressing uh, in, the, in the harness. He's, he's moving off one scene immediately into another. It's the busy gospel. Luke is writing to the Greeks. And, and um, uh, in Greece to this day, there are statutes where sculptors have tried to capture the perfect man. Luke says, I've got him. He's the son of man. He is our representative man. So he presents him very manly. As a matter of fact, Luke will underline the humanity of Christ, the fact that he experienced everything you and I will ever experience in the human body. Luke records more of that than the other gospel penmen. And John writes to the world. He lets us know that the Lord Jesus is God of very God. He's very eagle-like in his presentation. You remember there were seven messages that we looked at concerning the events, circumstances, leading into and surrounding the birth of Christ. There were four messages um, considering the scenes beyond the nativity, the very early life of our Lord. There were three messages from the silent years of Christ. Our last message, we began moving from obscurity into ministry. You remember we looked at the baptism of Christ. He's now stepping forward. He's, he's moving out of the the dark spaces and areas of life out into the light now. He's going to be out front from from now forward. He's moving from this private life that he has lived all these years uh, into public ministry. He's lived his life, 28 of the 30 years of his life, he's lived in the town of Nazareth. He's lived with his family. We believe by this time in his life that Joseph has died. He would have taken care of his mother Uh, He would have lived among his half-brothers and half-sisters that are recorded. Their names are recorded for us, at least the brothers' names uh, in in Scripture. But now he's he's coming forth uh, for this this public uh, ministry, this public ministry. Things from the age of about 2 to 30 have been quiet. They've been normal. They've been peaceful. They've been routine, but it'll not be that way any any time further. The temptation of Christ. He comes from his baptism into this wilderness scene, led of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, we may deal with a message along the way, uh, along this line. Everything he does, he does yielded to the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, he's anointed of the Holy Spirit. Everything he does when it comes to ministering uh, to other people, when it comes to sympathizing or empathizing with people, when it comes to sitting with people, receiving children, rebuking men, whatever the case is, he does every bit of that as our representative man yielded to the Holy Spirit. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. I want to speak under three headings. If the Lord be our helper... And um, I'm interested, first of all, in an examination of the scene. Where are we? What's going on? Secondly, the enemy of the soul. You know who that is, don't you? That's the devil, called so here in this passage of Scripture. He is the arch enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the enemy of God. He's the enemy of the Holy Spirit. He's the enemy of the Scriptures. He's the enemy of what's right, what's decent. He's uh, the enemy of your family and mine. He's the enemy of... This church and any other church, he is, uh, he is the enemy of Jesus Christ and anything that, that would name the name of Christ or anybody that would name the name of Christ. 
He's a disruptor. He's a disturber. He's a divider. He's a dissident. He's the devil. An explanation of the scene, the enemy of the soul, and then the example of our Savior. I've heard even preachers try to make much of Christ and saying that he's not our example because we can never keep the pattern. But now, that works pretty good until you read what Peter wrote in 1 Peter, right? Where he puts him before us as our supreme example. He even says so. And if we get that far in the message, I'll give you that verse. An examination of the scene. Consider with me, if you will, the scene's chronology. Look with me at verse number 1. The Bible says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan. He's just been baptized. Returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So it's immediately after his baptism. Then I read verses 14 and 15. Look at verse number 15. The Bible says, And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. It's immediately after his baptism. It's immediately before his ministry. Now, you remember we, we talked about when, when noticing his young life, how that he had to learn and grow. And there were a couple of verses that gave us his life from age 2 to 12. And then the other one gave us his life from age 12 to, uh, to age 30. And we learned that he grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. He grew physically, grew mentally, grew spiritually. He grew in favor with God and with man. And we learned, you remember, and all that growth. We don't know at what age he realized uh, that though he had to grow, he come to the realization he knows his purpose. He knows who he is as a young fellow, if you will, a young man, uh, if you will. He's known for years now what his purpose is. He knows who he is. He is the God-man. He's patiently lived. He's patiently worked at the, at the bench, the workman's bench. He's probably laid and worked in masonry with his hands. He probably had calloused hands. He probably, whenever Joseph died, he probably was the sole provider in the home. And he's lived this, and he's done it patiently. And now he steps forward very decidedly, rather doggedly, without any hesitancy. He knows who he is. He knows where he's going. And he's going to spend some three years in ministry after this scene. Everything he'll do will be scrutinized and criticized. Everything that he will do. He stepped with purpose into the Jordan under John. John tried to refuse him. You remember that. He said, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And he said, John, he said... Thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. He said, John, it's your duty to do what God called you to do. And for righteous people, we step forward following the Lord's orders. You baptize me. You submit yourself unto me just now. And I'm going to submit to this baptism. And then here we come into this, this wilderness scene. Jesus had walked probably some 60, 65 miles for his baptism. Everything he's done has been on purpose. It's been with purpose. After this baptism, Mark recorded Mark 1, verse number 12, and immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. Now he's tempted of the devil as he fasts some 40 days and 40 nights. At his baptism, it was his approval, right? It was his identification. The Father spoke from heaven and said, this is him. This is him. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the Messiah. This is the promised one. This is him. And I'm well pleased in him. I'm well pleased in his birth. I'm well pleased in his, um, the years he would have been a toddler. I'm, I'm well pleased in his adolescence. 
I'm well pleased in him as a man. This is him. This is he whom all sin is going to be placed upon. This is him. The Holy Spirit descended, the Bible says, in the form of a dove. That doesn't mean in the shape of a dove. As a matter of fact, I don't even think it means the shape of a dove. As a a dove will, will glide in light, so the Holy Spirit comes upon Christ. It's not that the Holy Spirit's never been upon him, but this is his identification. This is his approval. John, the forerunner there, he has had such an anointing on his life. Some wanted to know, are you him? Are you, John, God's got his hand upon you. Are you, you're an unusual character. You have the touch of God upon your life. He said, no, I'm not him. He said, there cometh one after me that is mightier than I, whose shoes latch it I'm unworthy to unloose. That was the place of a servant. He said, I'm not even worthy uh, to bend down and unloose his sandals from his feet. John identified him. He said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So that is baptism. It's his approval. But here in this wilderness scene, it's his gaining of attention. When he's baptized, his worthiness is declared from heaven and from John, from the Jordan, from the Holy Spirit. And here it is demonstrated before us. When he submits himself and steps forward for his baptism, he's undertaking these steps toward ministry. And here we see him unconquerable in this ministry. He's proving himself in the wilderness. He gets our attention. Our eyes are glued on him. Uh, Oftentimes we wonder when someone goes into a battle, will, will they survive? Will they come out victorious? You know the answer to that. He's as victorious on the other side as he was if he never would have stepped in there. He is the Lord of glory. He cannot deny himself. He is impeccable in case I don't get that far today. It's not just that he did not sin. I'm convinced he could not sin. He was made like unto us, but without sin. He cannot deny himself. I thought about this um, over these past couple of weeks now. Um, This temptation, it's immediately after the baptism, immediately before his public ministry, and, and matters of trial seem to occur in our lives in the same sequence, don't they? I think about back in 1992, I, I'd wrestled with the call to preach for some time. And I, I thought I'd escaped it. And believe it or not, I was leading the singing at Buckhannon. The Sunday I would wind up surrendering to preach. I, I thought I'd die that Sunday morning. I thought I'd die that Sunday afternoon. Somehow there was something that lightened up that night in the evening service. And, and, but I got home, and I'm telling you, it's like a wall fell over on top of me. I called my pastor. He said, I'll meet you back down at the church. I'll never forget it. I can just about take you in the parking lot. The whole building's not standing anymore. I can just about walk up to the very spot where that happened. I knew that church like the back of my hand. And, but it was to this side of the pulpit over here um, against the wall where the, where the altar and the wall would join. That's where I surrendered my life. Uh, to preach the gospel right there. It would not be until Wednesday night. Everybody had already gone home. But there was a battle ensued. Between Sunday night and Wednesday night. Making that public. I would preach that Sunday night. I would preach two weeks from that Sunday night. And there was a battle that would ensue. As you can imagine. Between then 
And that Sunday night that I would preach for the first time, and I think I've been in a battle of some sort ever since. A local pastor called me a week before last and was asking me about a battle in his life. And he said, can I rehearse it? And I said, you can. He said, what do you think? And I said, well, I'll tell you what I think. You might want to consult someone with more wisdom than I, but I'll tell you what I think. And I tried to sum up what he told me, and he said, that's right. And I said, if you'll be patient, let the Spirit of God work, I think. Perhaps uh, you may see God do something and take it out of your hands. Just stay with it. Put one foot in front of the other. Keep showing up. Um, And I can't tell you any more than that. If I did that, I'd be as... uh, Well, I started picking my wife there, but I'm not going to do that about gossiping. (laughs) There must be a proving is what I'm getting at. There must be a proving. It's a biblical principle. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Prove all things. A man proves himself across time. A a man proves himself as he is tested. A a man proves himself. A man's not made in a moment, but a man is made across time. Character is not bought, but... And it's not even born, but character is built in a man's life, in a lady's life, across time. You can point out a man's... uh, fall in his life but but if he's proven himself there'll be more than a fall in his life there'll be times when the lord helped him up and god's people helped him through and and you'll see him one of these coming with uh, coming one day with some consistency in his life we've ordained four men in this church the last two years uh, to be deacons and you've heard us go through the qualifications And one of those items that's listed in a man's life, if he's going to serve as local church as a deacon, is let these also first be be proved. Two or three reasons why we ordain these men. Number one, it's biblical. And then number two, it's to spread some responsibility in this church. We don't need just one or two knowing what's going on around here. There needs to be some men. God could call me home suddenly. And you're going to need some men that you need to look to. And, and so on and so forth. Brother Larry Winkler poses the question, preaching out of the book of Exodus quite often. He poses the question, which is more important, the man that can do the work of ten men or the man that can get ten men to do the work? I think I know the answer to that. The man that can get ten men to do the work. If one man is called home, the work can move on, right? Certainly it can. But this proving. Always after a victory, man, you can call uh, the Jordan experience a victory, can't you? Always after a victory or a high experience in your life, remember this. You'll be left vulnerable to the attacks and temptations, the enticements of the devil. I thought about David. I thought about King David. Um, he, he slew the lion. He slew the bear when he was but a boy. He slew the giant when he was but a boy. He was responsible for bringing the ark of God back and dancing before it. His his days on the battlefield were always triumphant. Were they not? He he overcame and defeated the Philistines and the Moabites and many others. Um, I believe his finest hour is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter number 9. When a king would take the throne, all of his relatives would be slain. It was a custom. That that way nobody would, uh, would be raised up and... And would become a thread in the kingdom. So they would annihilate all the king's family. David, he asked Ziba one day. He said, is there any left of the household of Saul? Of the house of Saul that I may show kindness unto him? 
And Ziba said, there's, there's one. He's a crippled boy. His name is his name's Mephibosheth. He lives in Lodibar. There's not much to him. He, he has to drag himself around. And David said, bring him. And, of course, he would be seated at the king's table with everyone else. Every time they'd gather, Mephibosheth got to sit there uh, with the dignitaries in the king's cabinet and his family. I think it's David's finest hour, by the way. But from his tower of invincibility, he knew where he was supposed to be. He's supposed to be on the battlefield. He knew who Uriah was, and he knew who Uriah's wife was. You'll never convince me he didn't know where... Bathsheba was, and he didn't know who she was, and you'll never convince me he didn't know where she would be at a certain time of the day. He stayed behind from battle. He's supposed to be on the battlefield. He stayed behind because he wanted to look upon Bathsheba. He lusted after Bathsheba. He sent for Bathsheba. He lied with Bathsheba. She conceived a son, and, uh, and he had her husband, Uriah, faithful warrior for David, had him murdered. David must have felt himself entitled some way. Listen to what the Bible says. The Bible says, Pride goeth before destruction and an haughty spirit before fall. If you see somebody with their head stuck up in the clouds, you know where they're headed. And I'm not talking about Lee County or Lafette County. You know where they're headed. They're headed for a fall. My old great-grandmama, she used to tell me every now and then when I was five, six, seven, and eight years of age, uh, skinning my knees around the troll community, she'd say, All right, big boy. You're getting too big for your britches. You need to come back down to earth. God has a way of taking care of that in his youngins' lives when there's pride. Pride clothes itself in many garments, doesn't it? Sometimes pride is is loud and proud and in your face and in your space. Does not respect boundaries, but at least you see that uh, mode of pride. Sometimes pride is clothed a lot different. It, it, It conceals itself. Until you disagree with it. Or you show it up. Isn't that right? It's part of what's wrong in some of our Baptist churches in Pontotoc County. They some folk don't want to let go. It's that concealed pride. That pride gets wounded. And they'll sit and pout. Say amen. I won't, I won't hang up right there. You remember what John the Baptist had to say about what we have. Whatever it is. You remember the Bible says in John 3.27... John, that is John the Baptist, answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Don't ever forget the kindnesses of God. God's been gracious to us. Sometimes somebody will say, uh, you hear that old slogan, that old saying, All men are created equal. All men are not created equal. I, I know some men that's never, never walked a day in their life. I know some men that can't hear sound. I know a couple of men that can't see light. All men are not created equal. I know some men that went through school and they had to look the other way. To get, they, couldn't make the, they couldn't make the grade. Anything you have today is afforded you by the God of heaven. All God's people said. When we get filled with pride, it's dangerous to us. It was pride that made Lucifer the devil. It's pride over in Proverbs chapter number Six, it's pride that makes the top of God's hate list. In Proverbs 6, verse 16 to 19, some folks say God doesn't hate anything. That's not, you didn't get that in the Bible. In Proverbs 6, beginning verse number 16, these things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. He starts it with a proud look, pride. 
He said, a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood and a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. God hates that. But he begins it, he begins it with pride. As a child of God, may we never forget. Uh, may we never forget where God's brought us from. We were going up to the fire station uh, in December. Amanda and I, we were in the pickup. We were going around there for the neighborhood watch meeting. And uh, uh, it's not big. It was big to me when I was five years old. My daddy wasn't around. And, and he knocked us all over the house and whooped my mama pretty bad. You've heard me say this. My oldest sister, it's a wonder he didn't kill her. He took my head one night, come in off the Marine base, and, and run my face down in a, in a bowl of peas. Now, I thought I'd drowned. But when my mama left, I remember the night we left Norfolk. I, I remember it. I remember it like it happened last night. We got in a, in a, in a taxi cab. Our, our mom told us we could get one toy apiece. She put us a couple of pair of pants and, and uh, a couple of shirts in a bag. We just couldn't take much. We, my grandmother had sent money for my mama to buy a Greyhound bus ticket. We came from Norfolk, Virginia to Tupelo, Mississippi. And, uh, you know, uh, the bus ride was, that was fun for a little boy for about two days. And then showing up at grandmother's and great-grandmother's, that, that was fun for, for a little while. But then uh, a little boy loves his father. And I showed Amanda just before you get to the, where, where they got their blessing box, toward First Baptist, where they got theirs. Just before you get to it, going to the church, there's some little washed-out red hill. And I, I pointed to Amanda, and I said, now, that's where I'd get and cry. I didn't want my sister, didn't want the Denton girls, I didn't want the other little girls that we played with and boys, I didn't want them to see me cry. And, and that's where I'd get. I'd go, I'd go down there when I felt like I just couldn't take it anymore. My daddy wouldn't call, he wouldn't come see us. We wondered where he was. And You understand what I'm saying? I'm talking about as a five-year-old and six-year-old boy, I'd get down there in that little old gully and I'd squall for all I was worth. So when I, when I, when I tell you every day ought to be Thanksgiving Day for the child of God... I mean it. Every day ought to be Thanksgiving Day. God doesn't owe me anything. He doesn't owe you anything. He's been mighty good to me. I've got friends all over this country. Far as I know, I'll preach from Oklahoma twice this year, from Oklahoma to North Carolina, and I'm going to try to limit myself somewhat as to being away. I thought I was out a little too much a time or two uh, the last year or two. God's been good to me. I don't need any money, but I could call someone and ask for a piece of money, and I think somebody would help me. If I needed something to eat, I think people would help me. If my health broke and I needed a project uh, done around my home, and beyond that, we have our church family. God's been good to me. God's been good to you. The devil will try you. You step forth to do whatever God has put in your heart to do. And I'll promise you, you sing, oh, how I love Jesus. And the devil says, ah, we'll see about that. We'll see how serious you are. We'll check you out and see. And uh, y'all not listening very fast this morning. The scene's chronology. Notice with me the scene's duration. We'll read here from verse 1 and 2. But I want to read Matthew's account and Mark's account. Just a couple of verses 
out of Matthew and one out of Mark. And then we'll look at verses 1 and 2 of Luke 4. But in Matthew, Matthew gives us the scene's duration as all the synoptic writers do. Matthew wrote in Matthew 4 of the account, verse number 1 and 2, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward in hunger. Mark wrote about it and recorded the scene's duration as well. Mark 1.13, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan. Luke 4, right here in our text today, verse number 1 and 2, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being 40 days tempted of the devil. If you know anything about the pattern of numbers, some of the numbers in the Bible really really carry with it uh, their patterns the number 40 in your Bible seems to carry with it the, the pattern of testing and trial of sort. You remember the flood, according to what the Word of God has to say. In Genesis 7, verse number 12, the flood, the universal flood, many people call it Noah's flood. It came upon the earth during the days of Noah. It lasted some 40 days. Genesis seven twelve says, and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. We all know that Moses, his life was divided up. He was 120 years of age when God took him home. And you've heard D.L. Moody divide the life, or you've read where D.L. Moody divided the life of Moses into three forties. He said the first 40 years of his life, he was somebody in the courts of the Egyptians. The middle 40 years, he became a nobody on the backside of the desert, on the backside of the wilderness. And then the last 40 We're able to see how God can take a nobody and make something of him. I thought about that this morning, just kind of reviewing that note I had jotted out. The first 40 years of his life, he was full of himself. The second 40, God emptied him of himself. And the last 40, he didn't care anything about himself. It's about the work of God. Moses spent 40 days on top of Mount Sinai receiving the law and other instructions from God. Exodus 24, 18 will bear that out. Moses sent 12 spies into the promised land of Canaan to spy out the land. They spent 40 days. And, of course, they came back and failed their test. They came back with a report. Ten of the 12 came back with a report of, of unbelief. And the Bible says in Numbers 13, 25, and they returned from searching Uh, from searching of the land after 40 days. Then Numbers 14.33 lets us know that um, the Israelites would have to wander the wilderness for 40 years because of this unbelief. And your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years. You remember in 1 Samuel 17, we mentioned David slaying the giant Goliath. The Bible says in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel that Goliath came down and taunted King Saul and the armies of Israel. He did that for some 40 days. For some 40 days. Um, Mark, the verb he uses of Christ being tempted, it indicates that Christ is tempted over and over and over for some 40 days and 40 nights. The scene's chronology, the scene's duration, the scene's characters. This is simple. Verse number 1 and 2. There are actually three on the scene here. The Bible says, and, and Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost, that is under divine governance, the lead of the Holy Spirit returned from Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being 40 days tempted of the devil. There's Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the devil. Uh, consider with me, if you will, the scene's location. 
The Bible says in verse number 1, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So the scene is the wilderness. Sometimes, sometimes we, we go to hunting and somebody will ask about maybe the track of land we just came out of. And we'll say, man, it's a thicket. You don't want to go through there. It's a wilderness in there. But that's not where Christ is. He's in the desert. There's nothing. There's nothing there. You remember the first Adam. The first Adam faced the allurement of the devil, the enticement, the deceit, the craftiness of Satan in the Garden of Eden. But here, the last Adam confronted Satan in a barren wilderness. The first Adam, he was not alone in the Garden of Eden when he fell. He had his human companion, Eve, had his wife by his side. The last Adam had no human companion on the scene. You remember the first Adam when he failed, the, the animals that were local to him, they were tame and gentle. As a matter of fact, can you imagine the mind of Adam? Adam named all the animals of planet Earth, named them all in a day. Can you imagine the mind of Adam? Somebody said these days that the average human doesn't, Use 10% of their brain. I don't think some use that much, right? Half that much. But listen what the Bible says about that. Genesis 2, 19 and 20. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowls of the air and every beast of the field. But it wasn't that way with Jesus in the wilderness. Mark 1.13 says, And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beast. The fact that beasts have a wild nature is a direct result of the fall. We also learn from this wilderness scene that, um, that uh, man doesn't have to have an ideal environment in order to live for God. Christ is our example. We have many other examples outside of Christ, but you don't have to live in an ideal environment. Some think that if you can educate a man just right, that somehow that, uh, that delivers him from something, uh, acts that would be very base. But now that's not so, is it? If you've had your TV set on or uh, any type uh, news uh, outlet, you know in, in recent weeks uh, there's a Ph.D. student that was going to college in, in Washington and he slipped into a three-story home that was rented by college students in the state of Idaho. And he took a knife and he slew two on the second floor, two on the third floor, and then got out of there. You would think an educated man would do different, wouldn't you? What's in a man's heart's going to come out on him. Why do you behave the way you behave? It's because it's your, in your heart to behave the way you behave. If you want to do better, do better. That's not how you get saved, but you understand what I'm saying. Some think that if you'll, if you'll clean up his environment, that, uh, that, uh, that will help him, help to mold him. But man, don't need a, don't need a, we don't need a new habitat. Uh, habitat. We, need, we need a new heart. You let a man get saved, it'd take care of a bunch of that, bunch of that junk. Paradise was lost from man by the first Adam. In a garden of plenty, Christ regains our access here in a place where there is nothing. This particular area is located north of the Dead Sea. It's located north of the Dead Sea. It's a, 
It's an area in Israel that is 35 miles long. It's 15 miles wide, and it's an area where, man, if he goes out there alone, he could be no more alone in all of Israel than there. If he goes out there to experience uh, a, a situation that would be very uncomfortable, very uh, unconducive to him, that's the place you would go, and that's where Christ goes. Let me give you just another item or two, and we'll bring it. We'll bring the message to a close, and we'll finish it next Sunday. The examination of the scene. Consider with me, if you will, the enemy of the soul. The enemy of the soul. Look at verse, look at verse number 1, then into verse number 2. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Watch this. Being 40 days tempted of the devil. According to the writings of John, in 1 John, we have three enemies, right? We have... Uh, there's the world, there's the flesh, and there's the devil. And I think the devil gets credited a lot of times when he didn't have anything to do with it. But there's the world, there's the flesh, and there's the devil. Regarding the world, there's, there's the problems of the world. We got CNN problems, we got Fox problems, we got NBC problems, we got Fauci problems, we got... Biden problems. We got Democrat problems. You say, well, I vote that way. I wouldn't tell it. I wouldn't tell it. I don't think I'd tell it. We got Republican problems. We got disruption problems. We got corruption problems. We got disease on every hand. We got problems. As a matter of fact, we all believe we're not just living in the last days, but the last of the last days. We're all familiar with. I don't know at the times. I've read these verses at a gravesite. The resurrection of the redeemed. There are many bodies out here in the keeping place, the, the cemetery, the sleeping place of the body. And one of these days, the Lord's going to call them out of that grave. And Paul would write to the believers at Thessalonica, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Isn't that remarkable? There's something profoundly different when the body of a saint is lying there and you come by to see the family and the hope beyond the grave. Jesus is our hope. And a biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's a future truth that we know of and we bring it back and it becomes reality in our lives and we wait on that day. He said, you don't have to sorrow like that bunch that don't know God. We weep because we love our mothers. We love our fathers. We love our... We love our mate. We love our children. They leave this walk of life. That's why it tears our heart out. But if they know Christ, can you imagine, can you imagine today having the difficult task of being a lawman and knocking on the door and a mother coming in her house coat at 1.30 in the morning and he has to say, dear ma'am, I'm sorry. To deliver the news, but there was an accident, and, and I'm sorry. Can you imagine the grief in a mother's heart during that time? And only a mother that's lost a child can know that grief. Only a daddy that's lost a child can know that kind of grief. I've never lived through that. Amanda miscarried back years ago. We knew that hurt. We've never raised one. Miss Gussie Bass was one of the sweetest ladies I've ever met. She buried three grown boys in two years. 
She said it made her bitter. She said she talked to God. If you get bitter, that's who you need to talk to about it. She said, I was honest with him. She said, I told him, I don't appreciate it. My boys didn't bother anybody. And we had good years. And she said one day when she was praying, telling God all about it, she got to thinking about all those years God had blessed her with those three boys, all three of them in their 20s. She said, my prayer of complaint and bitterness turned into a prayer of thankfulness. And she said, Brother Kevin, God help me with that. And she said, ever since, I've thanked God that he's given Joseph and me. Give us three boys. And all she had left was a, a surviving granddaughter, one of the boys. Uh, didn't mean to get off on all that. Uh, he went on to write, Paul did to the church at Thessalonica, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive... And remaining unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ, those buried out there, those bodies, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. He says, as a matter of fact, go back and repeat this. He said, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I preached through the book of um, 1 Thessalonians some years back after I came here. I don't know if you remember or not, but it's obvious. By the time you get to the Lord's return, there are some things that stand out. We all believe we're living in the last of the last days. Sexual perversion. Matter of fact, when I was preaching through this, I preached at a church in Calhoun County. Got in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 12. Four nights. Didn't get out of there. And... uh, there were some folk got angry about it. A man's married to his wife, you ought to be faithful to his wife. She ought to be faithful to her husband. I didn't have to tell them, but when Jonathan and Hayden and I went back here in the back, they've been raised right. But I said to both of them, I said to Jonathan, your desire is to be for Hayden and Hayden alone. He said, yes, sir, I know that. I said something likewise to to Hayden, and she conceded. She knew that. In the last days, sexual perversion. In the last days, busybodies. In the last days, idleness and laziness. When you get to to the return of Christ, it's very pronounced in the book of 1 Thessalonians. In the last days, there'll be an abundance of death. You ever heard the likes of men dying in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s? Just before the return of Christ. Are we not seeing that all about us these days? It's it's a life we're now living. It's the new norm, it seems for us. I hadn't even got to the temptation. We'll get there. But you do have an enemy today. He's the devil. He promised Christ the world. I'm convinced he would not have given it to him if he could have given it to him. He just wanted him to bow to him. You'll put a for sale sign up in your yard, the devil, uh, he's got plenty. He'll, he'll buy you out. And he'll promise you everything under the sun, but he will not deliver on his promise. He will not deliver 
on his promise. We'll get to the remainder of the text, Lord willing, next Sunday. Would you stand with us, please?